Millennium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Medium Cool Pod. That's Facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram and we'll pop up and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. And also, please make sure that you like, subscribe, follow wherever you're listening to this. Please do us a favor and leave us a rating, review, whatever you're willing to do. Just, you know, do the thing. Uh, all that said, I am going to, I don't know how long this episode is going to be, to be honest. I have no idea if this is going to be a, a shorter episode, a longer episode, but I'm dedicating it to one thing and one thing only, 80s movies, okay? Uh, my a friend, a friend of ours, of my wife and I, is, uh, is staying with us for a little while, and so uh, we, we started off watching Top Gun because we covered Top Gun last week, and that was, uh, I think I watched it like May 31st or June 1st or something, and then... Uh, that just spawned like we start. We just coincidentally watched like two more '80s movies, and we were like, "Dude, we should just make this a movie marathon, and we should just watch shit like every night, at least one movie, and try to knock out a bunch of '80s movies." So I made a list. It is extensive, okay, like this list. Um, but I thought I'd tell you about um, the first 18. I'm not going to talk about all 18, but I am going to list them for you, so you can know what I've been watching, and uh, you can let me know what you think of these movies. Because uh, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not, what's the word? I'm not, um, uh, I'm not being picky. I don't know. Oh, I'm not discriminating. There we go. Uh, th- this isn't like, well, this film isn't cinema. No, 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 no. I'm watching everything, yo. So like, <laughs> so uh, if it's decently good or has any kind of nostalgia or anything, I'm putting it on here. If you have any interest in me watching something from the 80s, let me know, and I will definitely look into it and see what I can do. Uh, and maybe I'll even get around to talking about it on the show. It would be great fun. I'll probably be doing another episode like this anyways uh, at some point in the future. And I'll be able to cover a lot more stuff here. So uh, this 80s marathon is going to be going on for a while. I'm still planning on doing a Hitchcock marathon. It'll probably be... Um, I actually have no idea when that's going to be yet because the guy I'm doing it with had to move. And so we'll just have to wait until we're ready. Okay? But I am planning on doing that. But in... in you know, in uh, until that happens, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I'm going to be doing this '80s marathon, and so uh, we'll have some long form conversations about some of the movies, probably the ones that are having their 40th or 35th anniversaries. That's 1982 and 1987, and uh, I'll be talking about a couple on here that I just, quite frankly, didn't want to do long form on. Uh, but there's there's a lot going on in the 80s. 80s is such a weird decade because in the 70s, we have the creation of the blockbuster. But you have all of these kind of art films and you have all of these really low budget, like really human films, you know, something like Pan- uh, Panic in Needle Park or something, you know, like that kind of thing. And you have these like really gritty uh, action movies like Dirty Harry or uh, The French Connection, things like that. Horror is really ramping up, all right? So you have stuff like The Exorcist, Carrie, like all this wild stuff, even Alien. Uh, Rocky changes the game when it comes to in-ring fights, like boxing. Uh, I mean, there's just all, I mean, just the 70s is wild, but what happens in the 80s is in many ways a response to that because the new Hollywood movement dies. Uh, People usually say it dies in 1980. So... Uh, Raging Bull probably being the last great film, and then that's dead. Now, it doesn't mean that other movies aren't kind of doing that thing still, but officially they kind of consider it dead, much like film noir in the 40s and 50s, and it's like, well, there are some 60s ones that are 
pretty fucking similar, okay? But, you know, those are neo-noirs at that point, you know? So if I'm going to be specific about these dates, like uh, like a lot of people, like film historians and stuff, I will uh, do it this way. Uh, basically, uh, these 80s movies are interesting because you have blockbusters now. So these movies are being made to make great deals of money, and they're creating true movie stars here, okay? In a, in a different way than before, like... This isn't just like, oh, they're cute or, oh, they're good at acting. Like, a lot of the movie stars, quite frankly, aren't good at acting. But they can sell fucking tickets and raise box office. So they're there, right? You have action movies completely changing the game. Of course, in the 70s, you had action movies changing. But in the 80s, it has its own genre. 80s action, you know what I mean? Like, uh, all of that. You have people like uh, Woody Allen, Albert Brooks, those types of comedians that are doing that work. Uh, they're doing some of the best work in their career in the 80s. You also have um, Brian De Palma, which I'll talk about today, uh, doing a lot of his mystery stuff and being all influential and shit there. Uh, dude, you have groundbreaking shit going on. You have heartfelt shit. And what's funny is all of this, to some extent, is really fun, usually. You know, I mean, there are there are so many terrible 80s movies, don't get me wrong, but it's just generally fun. A lot of the time. So it's been an absolute blast. I've watched a, a huge variety of movies. And I'm going to talk about some of them uh, today. So uh, I am going to let you guys take a quick break before I hop into this 80s movie marathon where I list off what I've watched so far. And uh, yeah, stay tuned. All right. So far in this 80s movie marathon. I have watched 18 movies. Now, now uh, on my Instagram, Austin Glidden on Instagram, on my Instagram, I post all of these movies. I post graphics with ratings and stuff for all these movies. Uh, I have also posted uh, 80s Movie Marathon Part 1, 2, and 3. These are 80s movies I've watched probably in the last year or so that I figured instead of re-watching them, they're current enough in my mind, I'll just add them to the marathon, basically. Uh, I actually need to add some more. Because I actually did a pretty, like, I kind of went through it with a fine-tooth comb and tried to find a bunch of 80s movies I've watched recently. So uh, I'll probably add some more. But in terms of what I have actually watched since the beginning of this month, it started with Top Gun. Then I watched, uh, we watched Aliens. Then we watched The Abyss, Predator, Over the Top, starring Sylvester Stallone, uh, Lethal Weapon 1 and 2, Bloodsport, Dress to Kill, Broadway, Danny Rose, Zelig, Modern Romance, The Goonies, Blowout, Major League, Bull Durham, Body Double, and Field of Dreams, okay? Some of these I watched by myself. Some of these I watched with my friend. I actually have a list for my friend and I, and then I have an, a, like an accompanying list that is everything that we have, also all the other stuff I want to watch <laughs> that I'm not going to subject him to, uh, you know, like Tarkovsky's Nostalgia and and uh, I think it's the sacrifices there, and there's like a Yodorowsky film, and you know a bunch of a bunch of weird shit that I just have no idea how he would respond to them. But um, so that's the list. I'm gonna go through these a little bit uh, uh, slower and talk about a few of them. But that's where we're going today. And uh, you guys already heard my thoughts on Top Gun. I gave that two stars. Not a fucking fan. Uh, you can listen to last week's episode with Joe to hear what I think of Top Gun. Aliens is interesting. I'm not going to talk about this one long, but so many people herald this as the best alien film. 
when I think it just pales in comparison to the first Alien. I think the first Alien is just a perfect thing. And uh, it, it is reserved and it is paced well. None of the characters really get on my nerves. Unlike Aliens, where the entire crew, except for Sigourney Weaver, get on my nerves. Um, Paul Reiser's fine too, I guess. And uh, the dude that plays the, I forget his name right off the top of my head, but the dude that plays the uh, android, he's awesome. But uh, everyone else, especially, oh my God. You know what? Every time I think of this movie, I always fucking forget people's names, and it makes me so mad. Uh, so in, in Aliens, it's um, Bill Paxton. Holy shit. Golly, is that guy a cartoon. Oh my God. Hey, man, it's going to take my fucking arm, man. Dude, get out of town. Oh my God. That guy is so annoying. Holy shit. Uh, so, uh, alien aliens is awesome. Like the, the story is interesting to me. The sets are amazing. The special effects are amazing. The queen alien is awesome. The mechs are cool, but really it just comes back to the writing. And, and I, I find here I am talking about uh, aliens uh, more than I expected to, uh, so I'm not really prepared to like go in deep here. But um, the thing is, uh, the writers, James Cameron is a part of the writing. Of course, you know, Walter Hill and uh, what is his name? David Giller or something like that. I can't remember. But anyways, uh, James Cameron, everything James Cameron fucking writes is kind of campy and awful. But like not like terrible. Like we just laughed at these things, but he's not great. He's terrible at writing dialogue for people. Anyways, so Aliens is like a four out of five movie for me, which is still really great. Like, I, I love that movie. Um, the first movie I want to talk about, though, is actually uh, The Abyss. And this is a movie I haven't heard of many people talk about since I was a kid. It used to come on TV. My dad and uh, my mom and dad would, I, I, I remember them at least, unless we owned it. They rented the VHS and we would have it playing. And The Abyss is from 1989. It was written and directed by James Cameron, so you know there's going to be some funny stuff in here. Cast is uh, Ed Harris, Mary Elizabeth Mastro... Oh, God. Mastrantonio? I always forget how to say her name. And then Michael Bain. Um, Michael Bain is uh, in The Terminator. He's in a bunch of James Cameron stuff. I don't need to list them off. He's also in Aliens. Uh, the release date was August 9th, 1989. The budget was $45 million, give or take. Uh, box office was 90 million, so it doubled its box uh, at the buck. Let's start over. It doubled its budget at the box office. Uh, I couldn't find the Abyss just streaming anywhere, but it is for rent. It's like 3.99 or something on Amazon, but there are other places to rent it as well. I strongly encourage you to check this out. This was a four out of five movie for me, but I think it's I think it's better than Aliens, if you can believe it. So uh, it's uh, about a civilian oil rig crew. Uh, that is uh, recruited to conduct a search and rescue effort when a nuclear submarine mysteriously sinks. One diver soon finds himself on a spectacular odyssey 25,000 feet below the ocean's surface where he confronts a mysterious force that has the power to change the world or destroy it. And, dude, this, this movie was really intense. I kind of, uh, I used to scuba dive when I was 12. Um, I don't know. I probably scooped it until I was about 14, maybe, and then I just stopped. I don't know why. I probably just got in the music and didn't want to do it anymore. But uh, I've I've scuba dived in the ocean. I've scuba dived in rock quarries. I've scuba dived, you know, different places. And one thing I always was afraid of 
was the idea of scuba diving in the ocean and having like a cliff, like an underwater cliff that you would like be able to swim over and below you it's just blackness. Because I just imagine something giant fading into view and murdering me. Irrational? Yes. Still terrifying? Absolutely. Um, I didn't mind scuba diving at all. It was not scary at all for me. But one of the things that was scary was this. And uh, also just like something going wrong underwater. I never feared anything was going wrong. I always took care of my gear. People were there to make sure I was safe. I had, uh, you know, you always go in pairs or, or in groups. So I always had other people, if my air stopped working, other people can help me have air to get to the top. And, you know, if something else happens, blah, 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 you know, whatever the problem is, it'd be fine. In theory, at least. In the abyss, it's just like everything's fucking going wrong. And there's scary cliffs that with blackness that people go into. I was just like sweating watching this movie. <laughs> I was it was so stressful because everything about the movie is just something I'm scared of. And then, of course, drowning is terrible. And there's a scene where uh, a character intentionally allows themselves to drown, basically, with the intention of being revived. And that is fucking insane. I don't know, dude. This movie is actually awesome and it's like a blockbuster it's it's uh, ahead of its time in many ways it pushed forward uh, movies with its special effects and things granted those special effects now look super aged but at the time they were amazing and they're kind of fun to watch now and most of those effects are only um, present at the end in terms of the really visual effects there are a few effects that shoot here in and out uh, but it, it looks great still, and especially all the other stuff, though, just like the real stuff in the water, in suits, walking around, all of just the way the movie looks is incredible. But then you get into like actual like CG or, or double exposure, whatever the fuck they used for this. Uh, and it looks it looks great. So you should definitely check out The Abyss. Uh, Ed Harris. Excuse me. Ed Harris is great. I used to love Ed Harris. I still do. But my dad really liked Ed Harris as well. And so I watched like a lot of Ed Harris movies. <laughs> and um, this might be my favorite. I'd have to think about the movies he's in and I have to go look uh, at his, uh, you know, IMDb page or something, see what his filmography was, just to see if I'm forgetting something. But this might be my favorite of his. It's really great. Uh, and Ed Harris is the dude that goes 25,000 feet underwater. Oh my God, was I sweating. It's just scary. So anyways, this was awesome. This this is nothing like giant creatures, like giant monsters or you know nothing like that. This is like this is like close encounters of a third kind meets if you saw underwater from a few years ago. You know what I mean? <laughs> like uh <laughs> like it's stressful like that cuz shit just keeps going wrong, but then it's like, you know, there is almost this kind of awe-inspiring element to it much like a close encounters rather than how underwater ends with giant creatures so uh yeah this is this is awesome i am not a big fan of james cameron generally but his 80s stuff is fucking awesome like everything we've watched has been so great and uh like i said aliens uh the abyss um 
what was the other one that we oh we haven't watched the Terminator the Terminator again I watched that last year but I'm gonna rewatch it uh, those three movies alone are great so you should definitely go check those out but the Abyss is definitely worth seeing if you have not. So moving on with this list here, uh, the next movie, like I said, we watched was Predator, which is one I needed to rewatch. I watched a lot as a kid on television. I'd only seen from beginning to end, uh, you know, kind of not TV cut, you know, no, no TV censorship. Uh, the full version of Predator, I've probably seen twice, maybe. So this was probably my third or fourth time seeing this. And uh, dude, it's like really gory but the first third of the movie is kind of just an action movie like a war movie or something you know and then it gets into kind of like a weird like paranoia thing and then it's like a sci-fi movie and uh dude this is one of those movies that i actually don't think is that really that great of a movie but it's fucking fun man we had a great time watching this this is something that uh my buddy dylan who i'm doing the marathon with dylan and i did like watch this movie and it was so much fun. Uh, the alien is like the, the the stuff at the end, which is basically like Home Alone in the Jungle, you know, where um, Arnold Schwarzenegger is like setting up all these traps waiting for the alien to come get him. And he's covered in mud because the alien sees in, in night vision and the mud is supposed to uh, completely stop any heat from releasing from your body. It like traps it even though you definitely see his eyes and, you know, like you just look at him, you're like, you would definitely see heat still, but it's fine. Who cares? It doesn't matter. The point is the movie is really fun and awesome, but I was really pleasantly surprised. I gave this a four out of five too. And as you can tell, with the exception of Top Gun, the first three movies we watched were kind of big action movies or whatever. And they were all four out of fives. The eighties was a big three and a half to four out of five for me so far. You know what I mean? Because everything's been four, but we'll get to some three and a halfs here in a little bit. So then I watched Over the Top, and this is what I want to talk about, too, because this is a movie that no one's ever going to fucking talk about on a podcast. Uh, it's Over the Top from 1987, directed by Menahem Golan. It's uh, cast as Sylvester Stallone, Robert Loja, David Mendenhall uh, as a little kid, and then Rick Zumwalt, which is kind of the big bad of the show. Excuse me. Uh, the release date was February 13th, 1987. Nothing like going on a, on a Valentine's Day... Uh, date and seeing Over the Top in 1987. That'd be great. Uh, you know, the day after it comes out. But February 13, 1987, it cost $25 million and womp womp, it only made $16 million back in the box office. This is streaming on Amazon Prime. Um, I would encourage you to watch it, but it's really terrible. <laughs> it's funny, like we laughed a lot at this and we got a few lines out of it that we still use, but... It's not good, man. This is uh, this is pretty bad. Uh, so uh, it's Sylvester Stallone stars uh, as hard luck big rig truck trucker Lincoln Hawk and takes us under the glaring Las Vegas lights for all the boisterous action of the World Arm Wrestling Championship. Relying on wits and willpower, Hawk tries to rebuild his life by capturing the first place prize money and the love of the son he abandoned years earlier into the keeping of his rich ruthless father-in-law this acts like this is a movie about arm wrestling um and every time i bring this up they're like oh yeah the arm wrestling movie right and you know sylvester stone's a truck driver right dude this movie is not about fucking arm wrestling okay <laughs> this movie is sylvester stallone acting as if he's underwater because he's just in slow motion it seems the whole time <laughs> he just seems like he's like at half speed like he took a bunch of quaaludes or something and 
David Mendenhall is this fucking insufferable little kid. And there's a part early on whenever whenever Stallone has his son, uh, Mendenhall, and they go into this diner and he's going to buy him some food and Mendenhall's being a little bitch about it because uh, he's like, this food is unhealthy. Blah, blah, blah. And this dude walks up to Stallone's character, uh, Lincoln Hall, or Hawk, uh, they call him Hawk, and uh, walks up to Hawk and he goes, hey, I'm meet me in the other room. I challenge you to an arm wrestling match. And uh, Hawk's like, I'm not working today or whatever. And he goes, they call me Smasher. <laughs> they call me Smasher. And I'm going to smash. I don't know. He says something cool. And that was really funny. We fucking lost it because his name's Smasher. And it just sounds like a joke. Anyways, he arm wrestles him and beats him. You know, and uh, the son's like, whoa, this is crazy and kind of violent. And so uh, after that arm wrestling thing, I don't think you, with the exception of his son arm wrestling some like mean bully at an arcade, you don't see Stallone arm wrestle again until the end. The last 15 to 20 minutes is the actual arm wrestling championship, which means the first fucking like hour and 15 minutes or however long this is, is him just driving in a fucking big rig with his son, who's insufferable, trying to travel from one place to this arm wrestling competition or whatever. Jesus, it is boring. Like we were just, we were like laughing at this movie. Uh, but at the same time, it was just like not fun to watch. Like I like Robert Loja. I wish he was in the movie more, but he's not really. Also, shit doesn't make any fucking sense. Like his son, who is in the care of Robert Loja, somehow just leaves Loja's big estate on his own, steals a car, mind you. This kid's like, what, 11 or something, steals a car, drives to the airport, and then just shows up in Vegas at the airport. How'd this fucking kid buy a plane ticket? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I guess it's one thing if Robert Loja has a jet and he's like, hey, my grandpa told me to tell you to take me to Las Vegas. But like, really? You think that's happening without anybody checking with Loja? It's not happening. I'm just telling you. Um, it's also... Frustrating because Stallone's character, Hawk, tries to get his son back by running his fucking, I don't remember, his, I think it was his big rig, through Loja's house. It wasn't the big rig. It was a different car. But still, dude, this movie is whack. All right. It, I watched this as a kid. The whole reason I bring this up. I watched this religiously as a kid. It was on TV all the time. Obviously, some cheap you know, uh, rights purchase from USA Network or something that they were able to just get it and show it at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'd watch it. And I used to love this movie, and I always in my head thought, yeah, the arm wrestling movie, because he arm wrestles through the whole thing. I'm telling my buddy Dylan before we watch it, I'm like, dude, this is about arm wrestling. It's awesome. Like, he's trying to, like, make up with his kid, but, like, he arm wrestles through this whole movie. No. No. Realistic expectations, everybody. He does not arm wrestle through the whole fucking movie. The arm wrestling stuff was hilarious. It was like a bad wrestling show, uh, and that was fun. People are, like, really exaggerating. If the whole movie was that, I would have had a great fucking time. It would have been like the blood sport of arm wrestling. But instead, we had to watch this insufferable kid and just, like, slow-motion Sylvester Stallone, and I'm just like, what in the fuck is happening? So, anyways, this is, like, a total stinker. Uh, but that's over the top. If you've never seen over the top, it's like I said, it's, it's over the top. <laughs> it's wild. Um, anyways, we, uh, my, my buddy and I watched lethal weapon one and two. And again, uh, one of my favorite franchises growing up, but I didn't really remember it very well. 
Uh, watching Lethal Weapon 1, I actually remembered way more of it than I remembered, uh, than I thought I remembered, rather. Uh, Lethal Weapon 1 and 2, I actually don't know which one I like better. I rated them the same. They're both three and a half out of five. Lethal Weapon 1, I think, is a better film. But Lethal Weapon 2 is way more fun to watch, if that makes sense. Like, Lethal Weapon 1, I think, is doing a lot more, and it's dealing with a lot more, um, and it's still a really fun movie. But Lethal Weapon 2 is really not a very good movie, but it has, like, more over-the-top action shit and, like, stupid one-liners, because I hate one-liners, but these were actually kind of, like, silly and made me laugh. And you have Joe Pesci in it. You know, okay, okay, okay. And he, you know, he always says okay like that, and he's doing weird shit. Lethal Weapon 2 is cool. I gave him the same. I actually don't know which one I like better, but they are a great double feature. So if you're ever feeling like watching Lethal Weapon, watch 1 and 2. They go together. Originally, if I remember correctly, Mel Gibson's character, Riggs, was supposed to die at the end of the second one. And uh, he might have been supposed to die in the first one, but they left him alive. I can't remember, but I know he was supposed to die in the second one. Of course, he doesn't. There's a third and a fourth one. And uh, the, the first two are good. The first two are good. The second one feels different than the first one. Like I said, much more blatant action, very much a part of like the 80s action, quote unquote, genre, subgenre or whatever. You know, there's like a, a vibe to 80s action movies. This is far more that. Uh, but three and a half out of five for both of those. Uh, I think you can watch those somewhere. Let me let me pull that up for you so I can uh, find out. I don't think I had to rent these uh, on HBO Max for Lethal Weapon and Lethal Weapon 2. Both of them are on HBO Max. If I had to guess the whole franchise is there. If you have uh, HBO Max, you should definitely check it out. Uh, another movie I want to actually talk about, though, is Bloodsport. We watched Bloodsport together. He had never seen it. I think this movie might be the a movie I've watched more than 95% of movies in my life, if not the number one most watched movie. Um, I used to watch this on TV all the time, and this was on all the time. Not unlike Over the Top or other movies you know, in this vein, they were cheap to get the rights, I'm sure. You could show them on TV, people would watch it. Uh, Bloodsport is a wild movie. It was uh, from 1988, directed by Newt Arnold. Cast is Jean-Claude Van Damme, Donald Gibb, Leah Ayers, Norman Burton, Forrest Whitaker, and Bolo Young. And it was released February 26, 1988, with a budget of $2 million, give or take. You know, uh, But the box office was $50 fucking million. That is a huge increase. And I don't know if it's because, like... You know, men wanted to fight like Van Damme and women wanted to fuck him. I mean, I know that's a very binary way of looking at it, but I'm just saying this uh, to make a joke, really. But, like, I don't know what the fuck is going on because this movie's terrible and I love it. Okay. <laughs> uh, I can't find it for streaming, but it is for rent. Uh, again, really cheap. It, it's a fun movie. And you can wait until this goes on streaming to watch this if you want. Uh, but I encourage you to check it out because it's great. This is the epitome of So Bad It's Good For Me. Like, if I had to give someone a So Bad It's Good movie, I would, this is the movie I might name. It's the perfect, def, like, visual definition of So Bad It's Good. It's about U.S. soldier Frank Dukes, who has uh, come to Hong Kong to be accepted into the Kumite, a highly secret and extremely violent martial arts competition. Full contact, by the way. While trying to gain access into the underground world of clandestine fighters, he also has to avoid military officers who consider him to be AWOL. 
After enduring a difficult training and beginning a romance with journalist Janice Kent, Frank is given the opportunity to fight. But can he survive? Ooh. All right, guys. Uh, We watched this. We laughed so much. This movie is so fun. It's terrible. It's awful. But it's, like, completely sufferable. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like it's completely tolerable, you know. I was saying the opposite of insufferable, but uh, it's one hundred percent tolerable. It's it's a great time. Uh, Jean Claude Van Damme is terrible at acting, uh, but like he just has like a charm, you know. Uh, Force Whitaker is hilarious because he's super young. He's coming fresh out of uh, Good Morning Vietnam, which was I think eighty seven, so that would have been the year before, and. Uh, you know, he plays this, he's the, he's the young, uh, you know, agent that is trying to be kind of a hard ass Norman, Norman Burton plays, uh, his partner who's been around the block. He's an older guy. He knows how to work people. He always has to stop force Whitaker's character, you know, uh, and Bolo Young, uh, is the, uh, martial arts guy who plays Chung Lee in this movie, uh, the, the big bad, so to speak. And, uh, he's been in a bunch of stuff. I mean, he worked with, uh, he worked with, um, Bruce Lee and a bunch of other like famous martial arts stuff. He, he's awesome. Uh, but dude, yeah. Uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme is basically uh, Johnny Cage from Mortal Kombat. Like this was the inspiration for that character. So think about that. He does splits on chairs. He does the splits and the punch in the balls, uh, much like uh, Johnny Cage does. I mean, this dude's wacky. It's a complete showcase of Jean-Claude Van Damme, which it was successful because this was his biggest breakout hit at this point. And uh, he became a big action star, even though his movies are generally terrible. Uh, but here uh, he does this, and it is a great deal of fun. Um, and this is what Over the Top should have been for arm wrestling. Because you get the first third of the movie where it's setting up, albeit terribly, but it's setting up uh, this what leads to him getting into the Kumite. All right. But that's like the first third of the movie or whatever. And then he's fucking in it and you get to watch like rounds of fights. And then it cuts back to him dealing with these military police and dealing with the girlfriend. And then he's like more fights and you know, it's like way more balanced and I actually enjoy and have a fun time with these other things. It develops nothing, nor should you expect it to. It doesn't matter. Um, but it, it doesn't do anything that makes movies work usually. What it does is it does things so terribly it's hilarious and it's actually entertaining to watch. So Bloodsport is a great fun. I encourage you to check that out, 1988. Um, I am going to mention this next film. I'm not going to talk about it yet. Uh, Dress to Kill is the movie we watched after Bloodsport. And Dress to Kill is a Brian De Palma kind of... Uh, thriller I guess you could say I'll come back to that one I was able to re-watch Broadway Danny Rose this up to this point was the best movie I watched I'm looking at the rest of them I think this is yeah this is probably my favorite thing we've watched since the beginning of the month uh Broadway Danny Rose I'd seen before it was always somewhere between that four and four and a half out of five for me I love it this viewing was the best viewing I've ever had of it I don't know what it was. I think it just hit me just right. This movie is awesome. Four and a half out of five for sure. If you're into watching Woody Allen movies or if it's something you can tolerate, uh, Woody Allen's in this. Mia Farrow's in this. Um, He plays a 
talent agent, like a manager, and it's all these wacky talents. He has people, uh, you know, he has a one-armed juggler. He has a blind xylophone player, a one-legged tap dancer. You know, he has these, like, just really bizarre things. He has this guy that has these birds that can tap out songs on on a piano or something and uh, but he has a lounge singer and in the, at this point in the 80s or whenever it takes place actually I don't think it's the 80s but uh there's like a, a renaissance so, or a revival so to speak of this nostalgic music which is more like the Frank Sinatra Dean Martin stuff so he has his lounge kind of crooner and uh he it's all about him getting this crooner Danny Rose that is played by uh, Woody Allen uh, getting this crooner a big deal where he's going to open for Milton Berle, uh, which is a famous comedian, for a couple of shows, and it could really put him on the map. But he has, the lounge singer has a wife, but he also has a mistress. And he asks Danny Rose to get the mistress to be at the show because if she's not there, he doesn't know if he can do it. So Danny Rose is like, I'll do it. And he's like, but it has to be your date because he'll have his wife there as well, the lounge singer. And so, like, half the movie is Danny Rose trying to get this fucking mistress to the show because they go through so many wacky antics because she's tied to, like, the mafia. And like, dude, and they're, like, running from people with guns. It's just a wacky movie, man. Uh, but it is so fun. Some of the most fluid, realistic conversations at the beginning of this movie. I honestly don't know if I've seen better, more realistic conversations, the overlapping dialogue, the way people are just like, you know, uh, you know, trying to one up each other with these stories. I mean, it's really great. You should check it out. I stuck on the Woody Allen bandwagon though. And I watched Zelig for the first time. Zelig is from 1983. It's a Woody Allen movie where he does a mockumentary where he makes, he uh, basically talks about this character Zelig from the twenties. And it's a di- it, the whole thing shot like a documentary, Talking Heads, like the whole th- the whole deal. And uh, they try to use archival footage, quote unquote, and uh, all this. This movie is great, and it, it just shows the level of dedication um, and experimentation that someone like Woody Allen and others in the '80s would do. This movie is actually super impressive, and you should uh, definitely check it out. I couldn't find it hardly anywhere. You know, you can buy a copy. Um, the, on DVD, um, I believe on Blu-ray, uh, there is a twilight time limited edition version that is out of print, but you can buy it for like 60 bucks or something on eBay. So that's crazy. Uh, I was able to see it, but, uh, you know, good luck finding it. If you can, Zelig is great. Uh, really, really good. I gave it a four out of five. Um, but very good. Then I got to watch modern romance, which is the first Albert Brooks film that I'd ever been able to watch from the 80s. I've seen some of his 90s stuff, but never anything before the 90s. And Albert Brooks is known as the Woody Allen of the West Coast. He has a very similar type of comedy, except for his is still distinct enough to be Albert Brooks comedy, not just a Woody Allen ripoff. But they are comparable comedians. They deal with very similar ideas of relationships and love and introspection and all of these things. And uh, Modern Romance is from 1981, uh, I won't talk about this one too long either. It's not one I really want to pinpoint here, but uh, it, it was extremely fun to watch. This is a four out of five movie for me. Uh, Modern Romance is uh, basically about a breakup and then that person missing the person they broke up with and then trying to get them back and make it work. And that's it. That's the movie. 
but it's all about the dialogue and the way that they function and the way that they move through it. I mentioned Quaaludes earlier, like <laughs> during Over the Top, where I said it's like Sylvester Stallone's on Quaaludes. Well, there's a scene with Quaaludes in Modern Romance, which is probably why I was thinking about them, because uh, I watched that a few days ago. Uh, Modern Romance is really great. Uh, like I said, Albert Brooks is also uh, Ryan Gosling's kind of mentor in Drive. So if you've seen Drive, uh, he is kind of the older guy that works on cars and stuff and works with um, with Ryan Gosling, getting helping him get jobs uh, as a stunt driver and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, Albert Brooks is absolutely great. I can't wait to watch uh, Lost in America, which is also on my buddy Dylan and I's list. Uh, but Modern Romance was a great kind of pre like it, that had tied me over till I get there. It's not as good as Woody Allen's movies in the 80s. Most of them, at least. Um, that's really not a fair comparison because most filmmakers didn't do as good a work as Woody Allen in the 80s. But uh, Albert Brooks is definitely worth seeing, man. Uh, I'm, I'm like excited to really start digging into more of his early stuff. Then, this is really funny, I'm not going to talk much about this either, but then I watched by myself The Goonies, which I'd seen before. I'd actually only seen once before, if you can believe it. Uh, this is really not as good as the pop culture kind of classic that it's become. Um, I don't think. It's a three and a half out of five for me, but I really have a great time watching it. So that's not a diss. I just, a lot of people, I don't know, they talk about it like it's Stand By Me or it's Indiana Jones or, you know, like something like that. And it's just like, I don't know, man. This is like just a derivative work. Like everything in this movie, I feel like you can point to something that they basically ripped off. But the way that they did it all together just functions as its own movie. Either way, The Goonies is great. I don't mean to trash it at all. Um, just like, I guess, context for why I feel the way I do. Uh, the Goonies is great. But the, the, the catcher here is I watched this with my daughter. She's 10 years old. Uh, she's really worried right now about uh, going, getting to sixth grade because she feels like once she gets to middle school, automatically kids are going to start cussing around her. And she doesn't use what we call adult words. Um, and so she just gets really weird whenever kids like cuss around her. So these kids are like cussing in here. One of the first scenes is uh, the character Chunk, the one that does the truffle shuffle. He uh, knocks over, I believe it's a statue of David. And, like, the dick and balls of the statue break off. And they're trying to figure out how to glue them. And my daughter's mortified. Because <laughs> the statue wiener, uh, they're just, like, trying to figure it out. Of course, they glue it on upside down, and, and it's uh, it's very funny. Um, and she, I mean, she laughed, but she thought the truffle shuffle... I could tell that she was, like, embarrassed by the truffle shuffle because it's so weird. But she was just like taken aback by this movie. She just could not process it. Uh, it was very, very funny. But anyways, The Goonies, three and a half out of five. All, I mean, of course, it's a classic and it's fun. Uh, Richard Donner directed it and Steven Spielberg produced it. So big deal. Uh, great cast, too. I'm not going to go into it. But um, I mentioned Dress to Kill earlier. I said I would talk about that later. I'm going to talk about this one as well because it's another Brian De Palma movie, Blowout, which we actually have an episode on. I've talked about with Joe. Uh, so I'm going to leave that, but that's, uh, that my rating is actually went up watching it again, man. I had a great time watching this. I'll talk about it in a minute. So I have another Brian De Palma coming up and I'll talk about all three of those, but I also have, uh, I'm going to just kind of zip line through these two because, um, I've also been watching a lot of, uh, quote unquote baseball movies. So I watched, uh, major league, which is from 89. I watched bull Durham, which is from 88. 
and it kind of set off Kevin Costner and and Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins. You know, uh, it was uh, one of those kind of bigger movies like that. And then I watched Body Double by De Palma. And then last night I watched Field of Dreams. So let me talk about De Palma real quick. Dress to Kill from 1980, Blowout from 1981, and then he made Scarface, but then he went back the next year and made Body Double in 1984. These three movies, Dress to Kill, Blowout, Body Double, all have a very similar kind of Hitchcock style to them. Um, you, you definitely get Hitchcock, and I would say for each of these movies, there's a Hitchcock that I feel like he is directly kind of pulling from. I can also understand why that would be really frustrating for De Palma to have to talk about because a lot of interviews I've talked about, people bring up Hitchcock and he, he just looks exasperated by it. <laughs> like, he's just like, dude, I, it's just how I see movies, man. I'm not trying to like be him. And I get that, but there are some very specific like Hitchcock things that happen in this, both with the way he tells stories, the way he sets things up, the way that he lets us know some things the characters don't, um, even down to specific features. So for example, Dress to Kill, you follow a character for about half the movie, that character dies, and then we're passed off on to another character. Now, the difference between this and say Psycho is in Psycho, you have Janet Lee who dies halfway through, and then we follow the killer. And in Dress to Kill, we don't follow the killer. We find someone who found the body of the dead person we've been following for the last half of the movie. And then we follow her, played by Nancy Allen. Uh, but there is a, a kind of psycho vibe to it. Uh, there is even a psycho vibe to the way that these people are killed because uh, the killer is obscured almost all the time, much like... Uh, um, Norman Bates in his uh, mommy uniform, basically, um, how he kills people and he's almost always obscured by a backlight or something. So, uh, yeah, uh, Dress to Kill reminds me of Psycho in many ways, but it also reminds me of Italian Gallo films. If you've seen any of those uh, kind of horror movie and thrillers, uh, there was kind of a, a moment where we had several what people called American Gallo films. And this is one of them, I would say. This very much feels like that as well. But then you also get that kind of uh, Brian De Palma campiness, I'm going to call it. There is almost like a camp to it, guys. I don't think that's the right thing to say, but there, it's like it gets real fucking cheesy. And a lot of his movies do. All of the movies that I'm going to mention in these three right now, these three at least, um, are they get pretty cheesy. But Dress to Kill's great. I gave that a four out of five. But then you go to Blowout in 81. It was the year, the, a year later. It has John Travolta in it, Nancy Allen as well. John Lithgow's in it. And this movie is actually amazing. I actually love the story, but this is less Hitchcock and more, you know, Antonioni's Blow Up from 66 mixed with a little bit of The Conversation from 74, Coppola's film, and then with uh, Brian De Palma's kind of cheesiness right like the what he brings to it that music that look that you know the whole thing uh soft focus the whole deal uh but blowouts blowouts great <clears throat> and it does still tell stories like i could see hitchcock trying to do a movie like this you know what i mean so um it still feels like kind of a hitchcock thriller a hitchcock mystery but it's really pulling from different influences as well and then you get the body double. Oh, by the way, Blowout, I gave a four and a half out of five. That movie's fucking awesome. That might be, it's one of, if not my favorite De Palma movie. 
And then Body Double from 84 is the worst movie of all of these. However, still a fun movie to watch. Uh, I gave it a 3 out of 5. However, uh, it is definitely inspired by Rear Window. Okay? Uh, Because ultimately, this is a movie about uh, a guy named... I want to say his name is uh, Jake Scully. I'm pretty sure. I'm actually going to look this up. Body double. Oh, my God. Why is this not working? Uh, Okay. Hold on. Hold on. Uh, We'll see. There we go. So, body double has uh, Jake Scully played by Craig Wasson. I don't know why my computer's being weird right now. My apologies. Um, And Craig Wasson basically uh, finds his wife, who's played by Barbara Crampton, by the way, who's in um, Reanimator and uh, From Beyond and movies like that. But uh, anyways, he catches his wife banging this dude like he walks in on them fucking. And then uh, he's all bummed out. He goes to this bar. He goes to these different. uh, He's an actor in L.A., so he's going to these different auditions and things. And eventually he meets Greg Henry's Sam. And Sam is house sitting for some friends of his, but he needs someone else to house sit for him because he, uh, Sam has an audition out of, out of the city. And so he's like, man, hey, you need a place to stay. Would you stay in my friend's house? Make sure you water his plants, do all that shit. Uh, I got to go out of town for a little bit, but if you could do this, you'd really be helping me out. So Jake ends up staying in this futuristic looking fucking house. It's so weird. And uh, what Sam shows him is there is a telescope in, in there. And instead of looking at the stars, it's aimed at a house across the way. And one of the neighbors is a beautiful young lady who dances and strips uh, in the window. And, uh, of course, he, you know, Sam, and then, of course, this uh, this habit is passed off to Jake. They, uh, they're peeping Toms, basically. They watch this person through their window. And this person is not playing to them, or so we are to believe. Uh, but what Jake, what happens is Jake watches this person every night because like clockwork, this character Gloria is dancing and, uh, he watches her strip down, but he starts to see weird things occur. He sees this person working on a, uh, like a satellite or something, um, kind of really close to the window that Jake is watching. And this guy starts watching Gloria and then, you know, uh, Jake starts to see Gloria being followed by this weird guy that they call the Indian, which is just, it's ridiculous. Um, but anyways, the, the point is, there are some really great sequences in here. There's a mall sequence where Jake is following Gloria, uh, not to be a creep, but to make sure she's safe, but he's also a creep. Um, Melanie Griffiths in this, and uh, there's a great moment that I call the music video sequence, <laughs> because <laughs> it's just like a music video, basically, but it's really awesome. There's some really great moments in this, but this movie is cheesy as fuck. And the music by, I think his name is Pino DiNaggio or something. Dude, that guy needs to be fucking fired. Like, I don't understand why De Palma loved using this guy. This dude did so many things. And uh, I, I want to I wanna remind myself what I said here. So uh, I, I this is this is what I wrote back in July of last year when I watched this last. What a fucking weird movie. I saw this years ago and I thought, I'll probably like this better now, but nope, still feel the same. I like Body Double more than I don't, but it's a painfully adolescent film by a filmmaker heavily influenced by Masters of the Craft. The latter is a compliment. De Palma is clearly skilled, duh, 
but this plot is whack. Also, composer Pino DiNaggio should be fired. He did classics like Don't Look Now, Carrie, Dress to Kill, Blowout, and over 200 other scores. But every film I've seen, the score is not only the thing I like least, but it's distracting how gratuitously dramatic it is. I mostly hate the score. The creepy stuff is fine, but everything else is yuck. The end. So that's my my little letterbox review from last year, and I stand by it. Like, I mean, I still feel the exact same. And I went into this feeling the exact same as I did when I wrote this uh, review last year, where I was like, I'll probably like this better now. But nope, I actually felt the exact same. Uh, but it, it is great fun to watch. Like, it's it's just really corny. There's a sequence where, you know, Jake is, um, what do you call it, claustrophobic, and he runs into this tunnel, and he starts to freak out. And Gloria ends up helping this neighbor that he watches nude, and he'd been following her. And he ends up, like, she ends up uh, helping him out of this tunnel. And uh, once they get out there, they just start, not immediately, they, they exchange some words, but then they just start making out for no reason. They don't know each other at all. They start making out. He starts, like, like exposing her bra like from her shirt it's like dude you're in public what the fuck is going on and like the camera's spinning around them with this super cheesy music it's the fucking worst like there are scenes in here that are fucking terrible but then you have this awesome kind of mystery um there's a great death scene in it um there is uh, some kind of hitchcock level not level but just a style storytelling in this despite the cheesiness, it really is a back and forth. It's like, man, this is actually legitimately good. And then it goes back to, this is cheesy as fuck, and I hate this. Um, but it's at least funny so I can laugh. Uh, and that's how I would uh, talk about Body Double. De Palma is such a, an interesting guy. Because with Dress to Kill, Blowout, and Body Double, again, he does this kind of Hitchcock-y thriller thing, right? And you can see, you can see these influences whether they are conscious or subconscious uh, I don't care if they're intentional you cannot watch blowout and not think of the conversation and blow up I just don't think it's possible unless you haven't seen those movies but if you have it's literally the same thing for the most part uh, but De Palma is such an interesting guy he also did Scarface like I said which is nothing like these we're going to be watching, uh, um, oh my God, uh, The Untouchables soon and Casualties of War, which I've never seen. I've seen The Untouchables, uh, but it's been a long time, so I don't really remember it. I just remember who's in it, uh, but it should be a lot of fun uh, watching more De Palma stuff. I actually went through a long De Palma marathon probably well over 10 years ago, 12, 15 years ago. And uh, not all of his movies were available to me at the time. Now I could watch probably all of them. So I just need to go back and kind of finish his filmography. Uh, but De Palma's an interesting guy. I'll look forward to talking more about that. And then um, I, I, I just wanted to say this up front here, okay? I don't give a fuck about sports, all right? <laughs> I'm not a sports guy. Uh, this is not a thing I care about. But uh, there's something about sports movies that sometimes, not always, a lot of times they're bad, but that sometimes can be either super fun or actually legitimately really good. And it's usually because those movies are not about the sport, even if the sport does, you know, uh, is a big part of it. But it's more about the stories being told about the characters and so on. Uh, so these three baseball movies, which I'm going to say in air quotes, baseball movies, um, kind of fall into that. Major League, out of all of these, I think is the most baseball movie. Okay, uh, so it's it's Major League, Bull Durham and Field of Dreams. 
So Major League I watched. I watched it first. And uh, I thought this was going to be bad. I thought this was going to be two and a half, three tops stars. I gave this three and a half stars. I had so much fun. It does not really earn that. <laughs> but I'm adding my entertainment value into it because I had a great time with it. Um, it is not culturally sensitive in the least. There is a lot of kind of um, negative, uh, negative. let me think I want to say, it, Native American appropriation. I'll just say it that way because they are the Indians, uh, the ball team. Uh, it is weird. Um, also, how they depict a guy who's like, who uh, basically is, um, how do you say this? He's into voodoo. Basically, okay. Follow. I almost. I wanted to say follows voodoo, but that doesn't make sense. But you know, he practices. There we go. He practices voodoo, and just the way that that's depicted is just kind of funny and weird. Like I don't know. I don't know how to think about that. But the movie itself is fun, and it made me realize that even like bad movies in the eighties can still be entertaining. Whereas I feel like movies today that are bad are usually so terrible, and I can't enjoy them. And a lot of people are like, dude, just turn your brain off and have fun. It's not meant to be fucking art. No, I get it. But it's also just not even entertaining to me. But a lot of these 80s movies are. You know? And I, I don't know why because Major League is not great. Okay? It is, it, is, it is a two and a half to three star movie. But my experience gave me a three and a half star experience. And I had a, I had a great time. Major League is... Uh, interesting movie uh, I'll, I'll tell you everybody that's in it here um if you've never seen it i would love to hear from people who have seen it though again it's from 1989 it's less than two hours long um and it's about uh the owner of the cleveland indians who puts together a purposefully horrible team so they'll lose and she can move uh to miami uh, and she wants to relocate the team as well and due to a kind of loophole in the in the um, contract, if she can get less than something like 800,000 tickets sold the whole season or whatever, she'll be able to legally move the team. Uh, but when the plot is uncovered, uh, the team actually basically just wants to say, fuck you, and they start uh, winning, basically. And uh, they're just a, a, there's something about those movies where you have a terrible team, but then they get that one thing that allows them to start working together and start being successful that I am completely susceptible to. I just love these stories. So they're like the fucking worst team. And then eventually they just get better and better. And it's great. Uh, I had a great time with major league. I'm pretty sure I watched this in like a rerun in like a mall movie theater or something. I vaguely remember seeing this in theaters, but I would have been four. So I don't think I went to the theater to see this when it was there, but I want to say it came back out or something because I've seen major league two as well, but I don't remember it anyways. Uh, major league was great fun. Uh, and I had a really great time, but there's a movie called bull Durham, which criterion collection actually just put a blu-ray out recently. So I had high expectations for this actually, because I thought, okay, this would be like, you know, uh, those Major League and Field of Dreams movies. But this would be on like a different level. And it's not really, though this is definitely a better movie than uh, Major League. But I still only gave it the same rating, three and a half out of five. This fully earns it, though. Uh, this is not a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination. I actually think it's good. Uh, it's a lot of fun. 
And uh, Bull Durham is from 1988. It's about um, a fan who has an affair with one major league or minor league rather baseball player each season, uh, and meets an up and coming pitcher and an experienced catcher, uh, and basically is choosing who she wants to date for this season. She's a very kind of um, fi- she's played as like the ultimate feminist woman you know she's into getting tied up sexually and and she's into having multiple partners and and uh you know she talks about monogamy at one point and she's like under these circumstances uh of the season i am monogamous but it's like implying like generally i'm not but it it comes across very positive for her and so uh it's and it's like a very kind of strategic thing that she does and that's she's played by susan sarandon she's great uh, Ron Shelton wrote and directed this. I believe he was an actual minor league baseball player. Um, but Crash Davis is played by Kevin Costner. He's the catcher who is watching over uh, Ebby uh, Lelouch, who has the nickname Nuke, played by Tim Robbins, which Tim Robbins was like 29 or 30 in this movie, which is kind of crazy. Uh, but he's playing like the new rookie, right? The young rookie. And uh, anyways, uh, this movie is great. Tim Robbins and Kevin Costner work great together. Uh, I love like the banter. I love the team stuff. There is another like voodoo guy in this. It's another movie about the catcher and the and the pitcher being at odds, but like learning to work together. This is the good version of Major League, and it came out a year before. So if I had watched this and then Major League after it, who knows? Maybe it would have been a three-star movie for me because uh, it's it's a, it's a strange thing watching Bull Durham after Major League. And it's like, wow, this is, uh, like I said, this is like the better version uh, of that movie. So anyways, Bull Durham is very similar to Major League in that way, except for it is made like a proper film from the 80s, you know, whereas Major League is like just kind of a silly, fun movie that you watch, right? Uh, but Ron Shelton uh, did a great job here, I thought. I had a great time with it. It's an uh, hour and 48 minutes, rated R. Go check it out. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't remember if this is actually somewhere. Let me let me double check. This might also... This is on Prime. Yeah. So if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it. And the last film I'm going to talk about today is Field of Dreams, which you can also see on Amazon Prime. That's where I watched it. And uh, this will kind of round out the baseball movies here. Uh, but I don't consider Field of Dreams a baseball movie. This is a movie about a guy who loved the sport of baseball, but he ended up, you know, really, he ended up bucking against his father, who was a minor league baseball player for a while, and he ended up moving away with his uh, lover, who became his wife. They have a great relationship in the movie. Uh, they have a kid. They buy a farm, and he's just like the opposite. <laughs> like what he was, right? But he starts hearing this mysterious voice. If you build it, he will come. And uh, man, I remember this movie being so cheesy. You know, as a kid, I just thought, but I thought it was awesome. Like as a kid, I loved this movie. But I always, I always just thought like, oh, look at all these old guys in this movie. Like I didn't know, I didn't know who Burt Lancaster was, or uh, you know, I didn't know who James Earl Jones was really. I knew that he was. Somebody told me he was Darth Vader's voice. But I didn't know who the guy was. Now, having seen so many movies, it's crazy because it's like, holy shit, like this cast is awesome. Ray Liotta, James Earl Jones, Amy Madigan, uh, Gabby Hoffman is the kid. Gabby Hoffman's great. Uh, she's like, of course, an adult now and still acts. Burt Lancaster's last film, by the way, he did a little TV after this, but this is his last film. 
Um, you had, like I said, Ray Liotta already, Kevin Costner, uh, who's fresh off of Bull Durham. All right, so this is another kind of baseball-related movie. This is why he got pigeonholed into the baseball thing. Uh, man, this movie was actually awesome. It's about uh, Ray Kinsella, who is uh, an Iowa farmer who hears a mysterious voice telling him to turn his cornfield into a baseball diamond. And he does, but the voice directs uh, directions don't stop, even after the spirits of deceased baseball players turn up to play. And that's the whole point of the thing. He ends up following this completely irrational voice that he hears. And he's acknowledging that it's weird and that he knows he sounds crazy, but he's experiencing it. And he makes this baseball diamond. And these old, dead baseball players that he grew up watching, essentially ghosts, come out of his cornfield onto the diamond and they start playing baseball. And more and more of them come all the, all the time. But only Kevin Costner's family can see them. Because whenever uh, Amy Madigan, his wife, when Amy Madigan's character uh, comes out, her brother shows up, he can't see him. So Ray, played by Kevin Costner, starts going around and he's uh, trying to follow the directions of this voice. One of them leads to uh, a famous writer played by James Earl Jones. One is uh, a former baseball player turned doctor played by Burt Lancaster, who's dead. Um, there's just a lot of fantasy here. But the whole point of this is basically a guy dealing with his his daddy issues. This isn't really about baseball. It could you could literally take baseball out of this and put any other fucking sport. It could be boxing, it could be wrestling, it could be basketball. Like you could you technically could I mean baseball works so great, but you could put anything in this place. Cuz it's not about the sport. Okay? It's about uh, this guy coming to grips with his feelings about his father, basically, and and about you know learning that he thought he was following his dreams, but now that he hears this voice, he realizes he wants to do what his father never could do and follow those extreme uh, goals, you know, and those those dreams that he has. Uh, I thought this was actually a really good movie, man. Three and a half out of five for me. I had a great time watching it. Uh, I actually found the end to be really touching. I thought it would be cheesy, but it wasn't. Um, man, this was good. Phil Aiden Robinson directed this movie, 1989, Field of Dreams. Definitely go check it out. It is on Amazon Prime. And uh, with that, that is uh, the those are the 18 movies that I've watched so far in the 80s movie marathon. I'm going to try to have Joe on maybe next week. We're going to try to talk about a few of these 80s movies. Not these ones I've mentioned, uh, but a few 80s movies that I will be watching or have watched that I haven't mentioned yet. And we'll probably have some more fun with some 80s movie marathon for the time being. So I will be right back to send you guys off. Stick around. That's today's episode, everybody. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed, uh, you know, maybe hearing some old titles you haven't thought of in a while. Some 80s movie marathon. Uh, you might be a little inspired to start your own marathon. I'd love to hear about it. I'd love to hear some movies that are on yours. I have like 300 fucking movies on mine. And I've, but a lot of them are rewatches. I may not actually end up rewatching them, uh, but I have them on there just in case. Like I wanted everything kind of in, uh, in a thing, but on my personal one is 319, which is crazy. We have 120 on, uh, on the, the joint one. So 120 of those uh, are there. As far as what I've seen, I'm looking at it here. And uh, there are a lot of titles on here that have ratings because I've cleared all my ratings except for the ones 
that I don't need to rewatch, basically, because I am going to be doing uh, by each of the 80s years. So the best, the top nine, nine or 10 films of 80, 80, 81, 82, 83, and just do the whole thing uh, at the very least on Instagram. And I'll probably post those on the Medium Cool as well as my personal account. But uh, yeah, this has been so much fun. And honestly, it's gotten me back to watching a lot of movies. Because like I said, I've watched 18 movies in the last 14 days that are all 80s, not counting the others that I've watched, uh, you know, from the uh, 2022 or, you know, I was watching Stranger Things with my daughter. She wanted to watch the first season. So we watched some of that. So, I mean, I was watching other stuff too, uh, but uh, I still work these in and it's just really kind of revived my passion to watch a lot of movies. So please hit me up. Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Let me know some 80s movies you love. Let me know if you start a movie marathon. Shoot me an email or a message and link me to your Letterboxd. If you have a Letterboxd list, I would love to see what you're interested in watching, and maybe I can take some inspiration from that. Um, but until then, I really appreciate you guys. Next week, I'm going to try to get Joe on here, like I said. Uh, but until then, good night, good luck, take it easy. Thank you.